As you know, we're in our Psalm Song series, so we're going to be starting off or introing the message with a fun special song. Um, I hope you know it and sing along if you do.
right. Ain't it fun when they haul out the xylophone, right? Am I on? There we go. You know we're having a good time when they start bringing stuff like that out. I love a good sarcastic song, you know, that says, you know, how many of you have gotten to that point? You know, they said it was going to be fun. They said it was going to be good. But, whew, you got to the place in life where you figured out the world doesn't orbit around you, and you are in the real world. Well, we're going to look at a psalm today that David wrote when he was feeling perhaps a little bit similarly to that. Uh, my name is Janice. I'm one of the pastors here at the Vineyard. I'm so glad to be sharing with you one of our song psalm series where we attempt to take a popular song, and uh, depending on your age and what you listen to, you knew that song, and, uh, and relate it to a psalm in scripture, and, um, and we hope that that will make sense to you by the time we get to the end of it. Our pastor happens to be an area overseer for Vineyard Churches, and so he is out this morning looking in on one of the churches that he's responsible for, and uh, so you may see him rolling back in uh, because he can't stay away. Uh, I think he'll be back before we're done today, so you'll get a chance to see him there. Well, listen, we're going to talk a little bit about David, which is a common theme when we're working out of the Psalms because he wrote many, many of them. David was a man, if you don't know much about him, he was the second king of Israel, but his future was mapped out early, right? He is the youngest of many sons, and he's out in uh, the sheep pasture taking care of sheep when the prophet Samuel shows up at his house and says, listen, uh, I am supposed to pick one of your sons, Jesse, as the next king of Israel. By the way, this is on the down low. King Saul, who's on the throne, doesn't exactly know I'm doing this, but God has told me to, to come here and to anoint one of of your sons, so let's line them up. Well, none of them was the one, so David is called in. He basically, you know, wins the lineup of brothers. This is, you know, almost a mugshot. But he lines up, and David is like, or Samuel is like, you are the one. You're the one that God has chosen to be the next king of Israel. No bloodline connection, but that's where you're going. And so, you know, for all intents and purposes, this is like signing day. For David, you know, I've been seeing some of uh, families that are having signing day with their student athletes or getting scholarships and stuff. And I don't know much about this because, you know, we weren't an athletic family that you know got scholarships for that kind of thing. But from what I can tell, they're committing, right? They're signing. Everybody's smiling. They're like, okay, this is my school. This is where I'm going to go. And you know, I'm going to wear the colors and I'm going to attend. And I know what my future looks like right now. This is what. I'm going to do, right? And I'm thinking, well, you know, I wonder, you know, what that was like for, um, for David. Because when you pick a school, you at least know what the next little bit of your future is going to be like. You know, you're committing to that. And when all else fails, you know, I remember being in college and going, you know what, I don't know what else is going on in my life, but I know when my next assignment is due. You know, you just do the next thing. I know when my next class is. I'm just going to do that. And can I just let you in on something for, for some of you who are in the middle of it? If you go long enough, right, if you go long enough, they give you a piece of paper and put a few letters behind your name and tell you to leave, right? And I think that they're just getting rid of us. But whatever, it works and you finally get through the whole thing. But can I just say there's something special about knowing what God wants you to do, what God has chosen for you to do. God has slated me for something. When you know that, 
And I'm not saying he has told you where you have to eat lunch today. I'm just saying that when you know the direction God has for your life and you've committed to that, that takes you through a whole lot of stuff. And I wonder how David was feeling this day. You know, was there any relief in knowing that, you know what, I don't have to worry about the sheep business or where I fit in it with all of my brothers. I know what my future is. I wonder if there was like a picture with Samuel and his parents, like, you know, and, and for signing day, his brothers clearly weren't very excited about it. But there's, it is so satisfying to know that God has something big in store for you. And yet... And yet, in the midst of knowing all of that, it didn't come immediately. In the midst of knowing all of that, there is a time when our hopes and our dreams take a turn and you're like, God, where are you in this whole thing? Here's how David describes his situation. I'm gonna be working at a Psalm 18. Our pastor used it a few weeks ago, but I'm not using the same verses, so it's fair, right? All right, I'm using nine verses out of the latter part of, of Psalm 18. So if you have your devices, your Bibles, feel free to open those up and it'll also show up on the screens behind me and on the screen for those of you watching online. Psalm 18, starting in 28, nine verses only. You, Lord, keep, oh, no, first, let me give you this part. If you, have a, if you have a great study Bible, some of them will tell you at the time of life when David wrote these. It gives you a little bit of context for when David wrote this, maybe how old he was or what was happening. This is what it says about Psalm 18. For the director of music of David, the servant of Saul, he sang to the Lord the words of this song when the Lord delivered him from the hand of his enemies and from the hand of Saul. And this is what he said. You, Lord, keep my lamp burning. My God turns my darkness into light. With your help, I can advance against a troop, and with my God, I can scale a wall. As for God, his way is perfect. The Lord's way, word is flawless. He shields all who take refuge in him. For who is God besides the Lord? Who is a rock except our God? It is God who arms me with strength and keeps my way secure. He makes my feet like the feet of deer. He causes me to stand on the heights. He trains my hands for battle. His arms can bend a bow. My arms can bend a bow of bronze. You make your saving help my shield and your right hand sustains me. Your help has made me great. You provide a broad path for my feet so that my ankles do not give way. What I love about this is that in spite of the celebratory nature of what he is writing, David is letting you in on a few things. The reason he can celebrate any of this is that in the real world, David has made some enemies. In the real world, David has some forces that he needs to come against. And so he's crediting God with all of these things. And he can't go crying to his mama right? He will spend probably the best decade of his life on the run. From, we roughly think probably to his 20s up to his 30s, he is really hiding out. He has had to scale walls. He will need to advance against troops. He has needed troops. He has needed feet like a deer to escape the, the army of his own country and, and a man who turns out to be his father-in-law. He has needed strength for the bow. He has needed a shield because despite all of God's promises, there is a real world. I love the way Jesus says it to his disciples. John 16, 33. I've told you these things so that in me, you may have peace. Notice that. Not in you, not in your circumstances. In me, you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. 
If you permit yourself to highlight or, or draw a line in your Bible or circle anything, man, I think you should just put that into memory. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. If someone told you in an attempt to get you to surrender your life to Jesus that if you just give your heart to God, everything's going to go great for you and that everything's going to be solved and your bank account's going to be great and your relationships are going to be straightened out and you're going to know exactly where you're supposed to work and your kids are going to, you know, make everything. If you think that that's what's going to happen, somebody sold you a bill of goods. They really did right? That's the problem with the prosperity gospel. A prosperity gospel wants you to believe that if you just come to Jesus, he's going to make everything perfect. Let's just do the math a little bit. Here's why that's so wonky. Can I, I don't know, that's a weird word, but this is why that's inaccurate. All right. If surrendering to Jesus made everything perfect in our lives, everyone who hadn't surrendered to Jesus would take notice of that, wouldn't they? And they would come to Jesus for what reason? Relief. They would just come for relief. That's the only reason they would show up. No, the rain falls on the just and the unjust. As long as we live in this world where Satan has sway, we will have trouble. But we can still have peace in Jesus in the midst of these times. See, in the real world, we're going to have trouble. In the real world, we're going to experience failure. In the real world, we will face fear because Jesus did not die on the cross to save us from trouble. He died on the cross to save us from sin. He died on the cross to put us in right relationship with him. That's what it is, to restore us to him. So if your only interest in following Jesus is a side benefit of being happy, healthy, and wise, you're missing the whole thing, right? You're going to be sorely disappointed in the real world. So David has this promise, this promise that he is going to be royalty, this promise that he is going to have prestige and more importantly, God's God's favor. But earlier in the Psalm that we just read a portion of, David says this, destruction overwhelmed me. In my distress, I called out to the Lord. I cried to God for help because despite it all, despite all of the promises, David is feeling overwhelmed. But here's what I love about that. Number one, God doesn't need our confidence to get stuff done. God does not need our confidence to get stuff done. He simply wants our devotion. He wants our devotion. See, God is at work even when we are struggling to put one foot in front of the other. God is at work even when we are massively discouraged by whatever is happening in our lives. You don't have to feel like you have it all together all the time. He can move and sometimes does his very best work when you feel the weakest. I'm just going to be really honest with you this morning as I was uh, stepping out of the house to come, uh, you know, I'd prepared the message, I'd sent it in and, and uh, I'd prayed over it and I'd, I'd done the study and I was walking out this morning and I was just like, God, I, I don't know, I'm just not feeling really confident about what I'm supposed to share this morning and all of a sudden I'm like, well, that's ironic. <laughs> that's my very first point, isn't it? And I just heard God scream that in my ear, I don't need your confidence. I don't need that today. I need your devotion. And I can promise you I gave him that. I gave him the devotion part of that. So we don't have to have that. He can work even when we're feeling weak. And and to be fair, most of us are really poor judges of how well we're doing anyway. Have you noticed that? 
You know, recently, Joe and I traveled on an airplane. If you haven't done that since COVID, we've only done it once. Um, that's, a, that's a real game, buddy. Every single seat is sold, right? And, and uh, I won't bore you with all the details. Suffice it to say that the airline we flew on had a few problems and, you know, there are 24 hours of my life I'll never get back. But in the midst of airport prison, which is where you're sitting while you're waiting for things to be figured out, you do a lot of people watching, and, uh, or at least we do. And, uh, and, and Joe and I noticed there was a lady who had clearly had worse problems than us. I don't, I don't know, they were out of earshot. But I could see her working with like a, 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 I don't know what you call these people, the gate agents or the, the checking agents at the gate. And uh, it, it, they were exchanging words. Again, I couldn't hear any of them and I can't read lips, but I could tell that the lady was not happy. And finally, the, the, you know, the official with the uniform just walked away. Good job, buddy. I, he looked like he was gonna slug her. And finally, he just like, I'm out, and he left, and I was like, this is not gonna be pretty, because, you know, an hour later, now our flight's about to load, and or to board, I guess is the correct word, and more gate people show up who don't know, they have no history with this woman, and, uh, and they attempt to interact with her, and she's given them what for. Again, I can't hear what's happening, I don't know what the dispute was about, she was not happy, therefore they were not happy, it was a rough morning, and they finally carted her off and got her where she needed to be, and then it was our turn, and we had to interact with them for some reason, I don't know if we were doing something with baggage, but Anyway, I was just overcome with these, these two gate agents who had been working with her. And I just, I, as they were taking care of my stuff, they weren't even making eye contact. And I just said, ma'am, can I just tell you what a good job you're doing today? And her whole countenance just went, and she looked up at me and I said, I mean it. I said, we can see, not, you know, not everybody's having a good day today. You know, all our plans didn't go the way we wanted. And, and I know you've been dealing with some difficult people. Can I just tell you, you're doing a really a really good job. And she goes, thank you. She goes, it's, it's been a rough start to a morning, but you know, whatever. And you know, and then she wanted to make a little small talk. And, and I thought, you know, how hard is it to let somebody know that they're, because she, she didn't feel like she was doing a good job. Even more recently, I was in a, a store right here in our town, and uh, I saw the store manager dealing with, with some things, and uh, they seemed stressed out, and you know, she was running back and forth and taking care of things and being as polite as she could be, and a whole lot of things were going on. And, and when I got up there to, to deal with her, and I just said, ma'am, can I just tell you you're doing a really good job today? I said, this store is beautiful. In spite of COVID and everything else, Everything is always clean in here. Everything is organized. You're doing a really good job. And she goes, you're gonna make me cry. And, and she said, I just have really good people. I said, you do have good people, but it's because you hired them. You're doing a really good job. I am committed to letting people know who are stressed out beyond belief, they don't even recognize that they're doing a good job and they get stuck feeling like the world is ending and they don't, because I don't even think we'd let people know. We're not telling people enough, at least I'm not, that the progress that they're making isn't based on how confident you're feeling. That's a really poor gauge of how well you're doing. And frankly, then we begin to limit God by those same standards. Why do we do that? We begin to limit God in the same way. I mean, let's start with this. What does it take to ruin your morning? Maybe you don't work for an airline. I, you know, I don't know your life, right? I'm just gonna throw some things out there. What's it take to ruin your morning? Spilled coffee? You know, cross words with your spouse? Slow, whiny children that you're trying to get out the door? 
bad traffic, <laughs> maybe a banking alert that you weren't expecting, um, a rejection letter. I don't, I don't know what it is. You know, what I'm saying is God is not so easily moved off his throne. When things go badly in our life, he's not going, wow, I have no idea what to do next. I was not expecting you to have whiny children today, so I don't know if I can move this thing forward. No, I mean, God is not, his mood is not swayed that easily, right? As a matter of fact, you know, I don't have small children anymore, but I can certainly remember this day. Remember when you have that kid that cannot find the one thing before they, you know, they need to get on their way out the door, or someone has got their feelings hurt so badly because, you know, a middle schooler said something rude, or worse yet, you know, friend drama, and let's not pretend this is limited to high school, right? I mean, has people all worked up? And you just want to say to that child, you know, because as an adult, you can say, girlfriend, guys, this isn't that big a deal. <laughs> you know, it feels like a big deal right now, but it's because you've only lived, you know, one eighth of your life. That's why it feels like a big deal. It's not that big a deal in the scheme of things, you know, so, so it's all right. Can you just gain some perspective? Can you imagine God looking down on us in our crazy overreactions and going, dude, there are bigger fish to fry. You are overreacting right now. There are bigger fish to fry. That driver does not deserve that much of your emotion today. He doesn't deserve that, right? I mean, don't leave your peace with someone. Don't leave it. They don't deserve it. The situation doesn't deserve the energy that you're giving it. The gauge of our progress, the gauge, the feelings of our success, and even our hope is so short-sighted. Because when we feel like we're winning, we think that we're actually moving the needle. But actually God does, and God can move the needle even when we don't feel like we're winning, when we're failing miserably, right? In this Psalm, you know, David has a whole lot of things here that he could have taken credit for. As a matter of fact, there are a whole lot of things listed in this Psalm that probably his men gave him credit for. His strong arms, his fast feet, his ability to scale the wall, his strength and security, his sure-footedness, right? And yet, David gives credit to God for all of those things, right? His confidence is not in his own abilities, it is in God. Listen to this. You, Lord, are the one who keep my lamp burning. You turn my darkness into light. With your help, I advance against the troop. With God's help, I scale the wall. You're the one who arms me with strength. You keep my way secure. You make my feet um, like the feet of deer. You cause me to stand. He trains my hands for battle. See, all of these things he attributes to God. Because as a matter of fact, David's best years are years spent under siege. During this decade, when he is on the run, probably his very best years reflect a man who loves God but isn't feeling that confident. He really isn't feeling that confident. There is a time when he is actually struggling to such a point that his buddy Jonathan, who is his, you know, his palace friend, it's his brother-in-law, comes all the way out to wherever it is. I've always been intrigued by the fact that Jonathan could find him and his father-in-law never could. Whatever. Jonathan has no trouble at all finding David, right? Jonathan gets through, all the scouts gets through. Of course, obviously, they let him through. But Jonathan comes and helps him find strength in God. Now, here's my question. Why does he need Jonathan? 
to help him find strength in God. Because David had at least 400 men around him already. He had family with him at that point. Here's why I think he needed Jonathan. Let's look at a description of the kind of characters that David had at his beck and call. It's one of my favorite scriptures. 1 Samuel 22.2. There's a lot of alliteration in this. All of those who are in distress or in debt or discontented. Those are three Ds that you want to hire for, isn't it? Right? Get, go hire somebody who's in debt, who is in distress or is discontented. They gathered around him and he became their commander. Wow. About 400 men were with him. This is even better. I looked up some other translations. Want to hear some better descriptions of this? Then everyone who was in trouble, in debt, or bitter about life joined him. And he became their commander. Are you kidding me? Is that what you want your, you know, your staff to be? Is that who you're hiring? Here's another one. All of those who were down on their luck came around. Losers and vagrants and misfits of all sorts. David became their leader. I love that. Who are you surrounding yourself with? Who are you surrounding yourself with? Is your circle filled with people who are bitter about life and distressed and discontent? Worse, who are you depending on for your strength? See, God sent these men to David. David needed these guys, but David did not depend on them for his strength. He did not take his spiritual cues from the discontented and the bitter about life people that were around him. It's one thing to have God send these people into your life, but we must be careful about where we are allowing influence to seep into our souls. He did not take spiritual cues from them. See, in these early days, this is why I think these are David's best time. David was great at boundaries. He's going to be terrible at boundaries later in life, right? He's going, to, he's going to mess up in some spectacular ways. But in this early time, he, when he really doesn't feel like he's got it together, and he writes a whole lot of psalms about, God, why have you left me? Come help me. Take care of it. Whatever. He's writing all of these things in a time when he's surrounded by these characters, but he was careful about how far they came in. Somebody recently asked me about friendships that sap our strength. I think the current term we use is toxic. Some of us are like, yeah, I have all these toxic people in my life, and, and you know, the current thought is, let's just cut them off, right? We cut off toxic people from our life. And the question that I was getting was, is it unchristian to cut people out of our life? And this is what came to mind for me. Jesus sent us to this world to win this world, not to purify our little circle by cutting everyone out of it. But there is this issue of influence. There is this, in, this issue about what, who you're leaning on for your spiritual strength. For those of you who are raising children, I, I always thought of this, right? I wanted, we had five children. They're all grown and, and are, are responsible adults and, and citizens today, right? We got them all grown. But there was a time when I'm like, okay, I want them to have people who need Jesus in their life. I want them to be around people who need Jesus, but I, I don't want to lose my children to that. So I'm always watching this arrow of influence. Is, is the influence of my children affecting that child? Or is the influence of that child affecting my child? And where's that balance? And, and always watching that balance, right? And, and so for us, that meant, yeah, yeah, we want our children to be around a lot of people who don't know Jesus. So can we just do it in our living room? 
Can we do it in our house? You mean, I, so, man, I was hospitable. Let's bring in 20 guys. You know, you can feed 20 boys cheaply if you just give them a lot of white flour. I'm just telling you that, right? <laughs> Waffles and, you know, pepperoni bread and all that kind of stuff was cheap. But, but it, kept them, it kept them near us where we could watch that influence that was going on. Now, listen, you all are in a new world with this, you know, with phones and media and all that. So, you know, you got to take that in consideration. But the same thing is true of us right? Who do we have in our circle that we need to have in our circle that we need to be influencing? But, but be careful who we're taking our spiritual cues from. Because if someone is depleting me spiritually, I need to back up. I need to back up a little bit. I'm going to give as much of, you to my, uh, much of myself to you as I can, but at the point that it's depleting me spiritually, I need to, I need to regroup and fuel back up with Jesus and, and be careful about that. I can't save a drowning person if I'm not staying strong myself. Number two, our discouragement can come sometimes from overestimating our influence. Our discouragement sometimes can come, not from depending on God, but by overestimating what I'm good at anyway. And I'm like, I'm not getting it done. So I'm, I'm feeling discouraged because I've overestimated that it's me doing all of this work. See, too much confidence can lead to arrogance. We need to be confident in our salvation. I'm not suggesting we aren't. I'm just saying too much confidence in who we are and what we've got going on and our resources can lead to arrogance, but devotion always leads to faithfulness. See, later in David's life, long after the Bathsheba incident, which gets the, you know, the most press in terms of his um, classic failures, um, one of David's final sins that is reported in Scripture um, is when he decides to count his fighting men. Right? Later in life, it says Satan incited him to do this. And he says to his commander, Joab, I want you to go out and count, do a military census. I want a count of everybody who can, who can fight right now and wield a bow. And Joab is like, don't do it. Why are you doing this? And Joab wasn't exactly much of a, a God follower himself. But Joab's like, even he knew that this is not a good idea. Why are you doing this? And David persists. And so Joab does it. Joab goes out and he counts everybody up and he comes back with the report. Well, you have a million guys at your disposal, a million, a million men who can fight for you. The minute David hears the number, he is, he's stricken. He's like, oh, I should not have done that. And, and God punishes him for it. He should not have done that. He wanted to know. He was counting on his own strength. See, it wasn't the military census that was the sin. We have an entire book in the Old Testament called Numbers, which is nothing almost but a military census of the fighting force under Moses' leadership. So it's not that there's a, a list that's inappropriate. It's not that, you know, counting up how much money you have in your bank is inappropriate. It's when you lean on that. It's when you lean on your resources and you've got to like, you know, you've got to check all your numbers before you can sleep at night, might have something to say about what you're leaning on for your confidence and, and to be careful about that. The sin was what it took David to feel courageous. What does it take to make you feel courage? What does it take to make us courageous? Who do we depend on and what do we depend on to make us feel like we're winning? Whose approval are we chasing? So, you know, we've talked about a few things that can ruin your day and make you feel like you've had a bad day. What's the opposite of that? What does it take to make your day? What does it take to make your day feel? Do you, I mean, I think there's a difference between gratitude for what God has given you and, and counting on that. The, I mean, we should count our blessings. Aren't there great hymns about that? Count your many blessings one by one? Absolutely. But trusting and leaning too hard on the stuff that God gave you 
that can be a problem. David even writes about it in Psalm 20, verse 1. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. See, he knows better. He recognizes that everything he has is temporary. You know, David is called a man after God's own heart, and I've always loved that, and I've always thought that that was unachievable for anyone else because it seemed that that meant that David was made maybe in the likeness of God, a little more in the likeness of God than I could ever be, and so he was a man after God's own heart, like he was the next mold. But it occurred to me as I was studying this time, maybe it also means, or maybe it means instead, that David was someone who was after God's own heart. David was someone who pursued God's own heart because he did that. In spite of his spectacular failures, he always came back to pursue God's heart. Folks, if that's what it takes to be someone after God's own heart, then that title is available to all of us. We all have a shot at that. We all have a shot at being someone who is after God's own heart. Finally, if God is more interested in our devotion than he is our confidence, this is another reality. Number three, there is no shortcut for devotion. There is no shortcut for devotion. Devotion represents a pattern of behavior. You know, people say, oh, I fell in love. No one has ever said they fell into devotion. You don't fall into devotion, right? That is something that you establish through repetition, through behavior, because you can't make a pattern of behavior in a hurry. Have you ever tried to catch up on things you should have been doing and you haven't done them? (laughs) And it's like, oh, I haven't read my Bible, so I'm going to read extra today. Or, you know, I haven't been to the gym in three months, but I'm going to work out for four hours and that's going to make up for it. No, it doesn't work like that, right? There's a pattern of devotion that has to stack up, right? Devotion is proven through repeated actions over time. It makes me think of a a physics equation. I don't know why. I was back in high school physics, right? Repeated behavior over time equals devotion. Now, this might be a habit, but I would suggest to you, if your devotion becomes a habit, your heart is even in it. I don't want my devotion to be habitual. I, I want to I think about it. I want to participate in that, right? I want to, I, I, it may be sheer discipline sometimes. That's okay. That's, that's a fine thing. So let's talk about devotion a little bit. You might be a devout Big Blue Nation fan because you watch the games, because you attend the games, because you wear the colors, because you talk about players you have never met. Maybe, that might be you. I happen to be a fantasy football fan, which is even perhaps more pathetic because I don't, I, I, don't, I don't attend any of the games. I just watch them on TV or clips of them in red zone, right? I don't have any team colors because I have players from every team, right? And I talk endlessly about people I will never, ever meet, but I love it because I love to talk smack all through the football season with anybody I'm playing fantasy football with, right? I'm also devoted to my marriage because my husband and I continue to celebrate who the other person is. We continue to give attention to who that other person is. But do you know how many things I love that Pastor Joe doesn't give a hoot about? Do you know how many, do you know how many things he loves that I really could take or leave? 
See, a lot of people think, oh, a great marriage is, is, is on those things that we both love together and all the common things that you have. That's what makes a good marriage. You know what? And that's true. There are things that we absolutely love together, and that is so fun. We both loved riding motorcycle for the past 30 years of our lives. We loved it equally, and there's something special about it, but that's easy. That's easy stuff. You don't have to devote yourself to that. You're just kind of doing what you like to do and happen to, you know, it's a good thing. They like to do it too. Yay. Big deal. Devotion happens when I don't really care about that thing he loves, but I want him to enjoy that. I want him to see his dreams come true. I want him to reach the goals that he has in life. Devotion happens when he is willing to, to get behind something I want to do, something that he doesn't care about, but he knows brings me joy. That can be devotion, right? And that is even more important when you support the other person in something that means more to them than it means to you. And you're anxious to see that. That may not be instinctual. It's a product of loving that person. It's a product of loving seeing them happy and enjoying whatever that thing is. And that type of devotion, folks, doesn't happen overnight. That is brick by brick. That is brick by brick, day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year. You know, when I surrendered to Jesus and I became devoted to him, I was only seven years old. And I know, I'm, I'm not even old enough for our own pastor to baptize me, right? I mean, I mean he, you know, I was really young. And people were like, you don't know what you're doing. And I probably didn't. You know, I did not know what devotion looked like at that point. I guarantee it. I remember struggling with the idea that how do I love a being I can't see? I was trying to figure that out as a seven-year-old. But I knew I wanted to spend my life doing it. I knew that. I knew I wanted to point my feet in that direction. And I would figure that thing out over time. And that's what has happened over time. I remember watching a 17-year-old Joe Wood surrender to Jesus and be baptized in my home church. I was a little bit younger than him. And I guarantee you, he did not know what devotion looked like in his life. He had no idea what that was going to look like, but I watched his life be transformed by that decision and the choices that he began to make time after time. And by the time I was 14 years old, I knew I wanted to marry that man because his devotion to Jesus was and still is so contagious. It is so contagious. 1 Kings 8, 61. Let your heart therefore be wholly devoted to the Lord our God, to walk in his statutes and keep his commandments as it is this day. Colossians 4, 2. Paul tells the Colossians this, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. And then David says to his own son Jonathan in 1 Chronicles 22, 19, now set your heart and soul to seek the Lord your God. Set your heart and soul. That is devotion. That is set your feet. Point your feet toward Jesus. Arise, therefore, and build the sanctuary of the Lord God. See, David knew this. David knew. Can you imagine leaving a book of Psalms, a book of songs, which is what that is, and, and basically prayer journals for, you know, generations to learn from. Can you imagine leaving that behind? He did not do that in the last eight hours before an assignment was due. That is, that's, that is decades of victory. I, I mean, decades of, of um, that's not the word I want, decades of battle, not a short series of victory. 
That is, that's time after time, moments of fear and discouragement and sin and repentance. David kept record of his relationship with God. I love that. You know, I hear people say, I don't know enough about Jesus or the Bible, and, and I want you to know if that's you this morning, you don't get all of that in one session. You don't. But don't be intimidated by that. It's a slow build. It's a slow build. And, and here's the great part. Even though there's no shortcut, Jesus has something for you. There are glimpses of God's glory that he does not reserve for people who've been Christian the longest. There are glimpses of his glory that he has available for everybody all of the time. Let me tell you about just a couple. There was a time back in the early days when uh, we planted this church. We were, we were situated in this space, but it was actually over there in the children's area and it was faced in another direction. Anyway, it was Mother's Day. I remember that. Joe was out of town. He was visiting his mom. And, uh, and I was trying to hold down the fort. And there was a, a young, uh, there was a family there in the back of the church. And somebody came up and said they really need to talk to somebody. And I went back. Church was over. And there was a beautiful blonde college student. I, and I, they're not around anymore. I don't remember their names. They could have been angels unaware. I have no idea. It was a, a, a blonde college student and uh, her parents look about our age on either side and uh, all of them were crying and uh, I came back there and I said what can I do for you and, and the, the father said uh, we want to know what just happened here and I'm like well, I don't know we just had church what do you mean what happened you know I, I didn't know what he meant and uh, he goes we don't know why we're crying he said um, you have to understand my wife and I are in a bitter divorce and we are only here this moment to just as a gift to our daughter who wanted us to come to this church she found while she was in college. And that's the only reason we're here. We're from a Catholic background. I don't know what in the world is going on here. This is not the way we do church. And we don't know why we're crying. I said, I know why you're crying. You just had a glimpse of God's glory. You just had a touch of the Holy Spirit that isn't just reserved for people who've been following him for 50 years. There's a glimpse of that. And why does that happen? It's because when we are gathered together, God's presence is palpable in our midst. There is something about gathering together. That's why we've missed it so bad. There's something about it. It's not that God can't work in other ways, but there's something about his presence when we are all together in one place. And, and God honors that seeking I'm telling you, we have that opportunity tonight. We have a pulse service here at six o'clock tonight. If you have never been to a pulse service, it's not that there is more intensity at a pulse service. We're not after intensity. We are after intimacy that can happen at a pulse service when we come and we are directing our worship toward God. We're not just here to get something. We are here to give something to God. And in that moment, you can get a glimpse of God's presence in a really special way. Come back tonight at six. We have baptisms to do. We have communion. Pastor Joe's going to be back here for a message tonight. But two other things. For our children, for our children growing, uh, the, our own children in particular, and probably for you, church camp was a really big deal, right? I don't know what it is about church camp, and it's irritated me, and I've analyzed it 15 ways from Sunday. We're not telling them anything new at church camp that we haven't told them in Sunday school or in V Kids all these years. Why do they go away to church camp and come back going, oh, now I get it. Now I want to follow Jesus. Why is that? 
I don't know. It's something about the atmosphere, something about the anonymity, something about being out of the regular routine. Maybe it's something about hearing from someone new. Church camp can be incredible. We have those opportunities coming. Stay tuned. If your kids fit in those uh, age groups, make sure that they have an opportunity to go. Same thing with adults, friends. There's something about getting out of our regular routine. We're registering this morning for the Women's Weekend coming up in September and the Men's Getaway Retreat, I don't know what they're calling it, event thing that's happening in August. I know it's money. I'm telling you there's something worth it. Because when we get away, away from the stresses of our world, when we take time away, when we engage in a different way, we get a glimpse of God's glory. There's something there. Don't miss out on an opportunity to interact with Jesus in a fresh way. Now, I don't know what God has been saying to you this morning. These people up here are our prayer team. And we're going to sing one more song as we rise to our feet and stand. And during this song, any of you who would like prayer, you just pick somebody who looks friendly and you come stand in front of them. You can say as little or as much as you want to say. You can say nothing at all when I tell you they'll read your mail because that's what the Holy Spirit does. And they'll pray over you and that's fine. But maybe you want to be more devoted. Maybe you want to start creating a pattern of behavior that amounts to devotion. Maybe in your spiritual life, maybe in your relationships. I don't know. Maybe you know it's time for that. Maybe you've never surrendered your life to Jesus and you know it is time. Like that seven-year-old self of mine who knew it was that moment, even though I didn't know much. If that's you this morning, this is your opportunity to come up and get prayer. Let's stand to our feet as we go into this next song. God, I just pray over us this morning. Father, you know every heart here. You know every heart that is, that is beating too fast because someone knows that they need to come forward and get prayer, but it's a little scary. And they don't know these people up here and they don't know what they're gonna say. And God, I pray that you would just move the feet. Just like you said, David, and you made his feet like a deer. I pray that you would move the feet of the people who need to come forward this morning so that they can hear your words given through someone else today. Draw our hearts to you this morning. In Jesus' name.